Hey, this is Knut. Howard has taken a few weeks off to go climb some mountains on his bike, so we'll be doing reruns of some of our favorite panic pods. This episode with Gary Tan was aired back in September of 21. Enjoy. I'm Gary Tan. I'm the founder and managing partner at Initialized Capital. I'm panicked about how many companies there are in the current Y Combinator batch. I think it's Howard uh, something Lindzen. How am I looking? You're looking good for you. Yeah, we just fucking wolfed down. Uh, what did we just eat? Calzone um, H. I, literally. Boom. It's hard to find the right balance of Ritalin when you have a calzone. It's just, uh, <laughs> everything I do is bass backwards. In Phoenix, I just have a routine here with you where I know where to eat and I know what I want and right. none of it is good for me. Well, yeah, you know, I'm a bad influence. What yeah. can I say? Twitter and carbs and stocks. <laughs> it's just not, I mean, it's a miracle that I'm alive. It is. Yeah. And this itch won't go away. And I've been talking about <laughs> it for modern about seven podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of itch, see the see oh, what I did there? That's a nice segue. Yeah. To what? I don't know, but I mean, he may already be offended. Uh, but he's been so patient to guest number 600 on the show, which to me is like, you know, season one. The, uh, but to him, it feels like he's 590 people were asked ahead of him. And he's so polite, this Gary Tan. He's uh, a unique individual. I've only met him a couple times, and it was in passing. And he says he's a fan. So he has a drinking problem, which immediately endears me more to him. <laughs> so Gary Tan's resume is bananas, which is what we love having on, on Panic with Friends. They may not be famous to the everyday person, but they're famous to me. And I just can't wait. To, I feel like I'm their friend because I know I'm from their successes and uh, greatness. And their constant contribution to the social discourse, uh, good discourse. Wonderful. So let me say, what can I say about Gary? He's uh, not that tall. So this is a good thing. So I have one thing that I think I beat him at. I tower over him. He is a uh, Stanford graduate. He is, was at uh, Y Combinator, I don't know, for four or five years in the heyday. He was partners with uh, Reddit uh, co-founder or founder Alex Ohaney. I can't pronounce his name. He's tall and uh, married to tennis superstar. And uh, we share a few investments together. He's an investor in um, Rally Road. And then what else? Gary was a big seed investor in Coinbase. Ooh. Yes. So, Canute, nice contain one. yourself. You can't ask him for money. All right. You know too much already. And what else about Gary? He is now initialized capital. I mean, he's a seed investor in Flexport, Instacart. You know, the, the list goes on and on. And now he's got a YouTube show that he produces. I want to ask him about that because it's, it's hard work. We know from doing this and I think making videos even harder. So I'd like to get into that. And he created a, a, a early blogging platform called Posturous. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it well. So he's been there, done that, done it all. And so it's off my chest. 
you can watch a thousand podcasts, I'm sure, where he's talked about the past. And I kind of want to just focus on the future because I don't get much time with people like this. So I just want to talk about what he's thinking about next. Because, you know, talk to someone who's had this many hits or recognizes this many breakouts. I'd rather talk to them about what they think might be a breakout. What do you think? Good idea. Not that you care, but I care. It's I my do. show. I do. So let's get Gary on. I will. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Big fan. Yeah, this is a thrill. We don't, we're not going to talk about what you want to talk about because it's my show. But I, That I'm, sounds great. Yeah. I'm here for this. You're here for this. So let's talk for, are you married? Yep. Yep. And do you have kids? Uh, yeah, two kids, two and six. So I'm in it. You're in it. You're in it deep. And you're in San Francisco? Yep. Yep. What would make you move? You're there forever if you're still there. Oh, I grew up in the Bay Area. So, you know, I think this place is the golden goose. And, uh, you know, we did a survey of all our founders recently. Uh, number one by far is still San Francisco. If you could choose anywhere in the world to start a company, our founders would choose San Francisco. But uh, the next best is, uh, you know, now remote, whereas before it was New York. So it's an interesting move that is happening in the world today. And I think remote might overtake at some point. But it's crazy times. It's crazy times, right? Because for me, it would be Tuscany and Coronado. So could I apply? Would I be in a potential batch, a Gary Tan batch, if I put that up top? Hey, the best thing about being a remote startup is you could be in Coronado or, you know, I would choose Positano myself, but I don't know what it's like to live there. I've only visited. Yeah, Positano, I refuse to take the missus there because, I'm, you know, that's expensive. <laughs> Tuscany is cheap. Might not be allowed to leave. <laughs> yeah, Positano is the place. So you're in San Francisco. Where'd you meet your wife? Oh, uh, what's funny is obviously I started a blog platform, but we actually met via a blog platform when we were both in college. And um, what was that she, blog platform called? Google Blogger? Oh, it was called Zanga, actually. So it was Biz Stone's uh, blog platform before he went off to work on all the various things. Wait a minute. Blogspot so Ev, okay, now you're dating. Now you're making me mad because he's so smart and so young still, and you're young. So wait a minute. I thought Google Blogger was his first product. Like the the I thought I thought uh, I think I right loved before that. he was working on Zanga, which was the uh, the Asian blogger basically. Wow, what for was like he, Asian teenagers, and you know you had blog rings, and I think we met on either probably on the Intelligent Thoughts blog ring, which um, I'm embarrassed to say because that's so pretentious. But you know we were. 21 years old at the time. So, well, the good news is 40. So, I've done so many of these episodes, and pretentious is not a word that's even been uttered. So, congrats. <laughs> right. You got a prize. All the way to number 600. <laughs> so, what is, were you born curious or, or um, obviously you were born smart and you had, uh, what makes a Gary Tan? Are you close with your parents? Are they still alive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, uh, the crazy story for me is, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants, obviously, and my mom was a nurse assistant, you know, always wanted to pass that LVN, you know, sort of test to make it to the next level, but she didn't because of her language skills. And then my dad was, uh, you know, foreman at a machine shop. And, um, you know, I lived in one and two bedroom apartments, sometimes food insecure. And the thing about me is that uh, one thing I'm thankful for my parents that they really fostered was I was always obsessed with computers. So even when I was 12, 15, you know, five, eight, you know, like when I was really young, I just loved computers. I learned to, you know, write my first story on a keyboard on an IBM PC XT. And then later, um, you know, I realized, oh, we don't have a lot of money 
but I have these skills that people are willing to pay me for. So I remember being 14 years old, learning how to make a web page, and then I started cold calling the yellow pages to get my first job that paid me, you know, seven bucks an hour, then 14 bucks an hour. What do you think and, the hit uh, rate was on the, uh, was it like the, do you remember the first time you called somebody? Cause I sold Encyclopedia Britannica, which was like the equivalent of you cold calling on the yellow pages. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, what was the hit was rate, weird, right? What was the hit rate? <laughs> I called like 20 places and then one of the places hired me and they said, yeah, child labor, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we did the opposite with our kids. It's an experiment and we, we won't have the data for a while, but I have not let my kids know that the internet exists. They have slinkies. And uh, they play Battleship. And they're doing well. I mean, they, they're very polite. And uh, they're both going to be uh, butchers. No, so, I mean, you, ha- <laughs> you knew they were going to. So, so your parents giving you the computer was the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I helped pay for their, uh, you know, we took the money that I saved and uh, they bought their first house. So it's like really the American dream. Um, and then I ended up getting to Stanford, which was another type of American dream. Um, you know, I feel very lucky about that because, you know, shoot, you know, society has a great sort and, uh, you know, I made it on the other side, but now it's a weird time, you know, not to get too serious, but you're like, shoot, you know, a lot of us are on the right side of the great sort. A lot of people aren't. And then how do we make more prosperity? But, you know, that's why I love San Francisco. I'm, you know, this place has like the most social mobility in the world. And I think it's really important to preserve that. Cycles are fast and furious in that city. So living with a two-year-old, with a nerd, successful, investing, operating geek dad, what do you draw? Are you obsessively giving the two-year-old stuff to play with? and Or is it just an iPad? What is it that a two-year-old loves? Oh man, two's early. So Two's early, um, so then let's go six. Yeah, for the six-year-old, we've uh, he's been playing Minecraft since maybe three and a half or four. So six-year-old is gaming? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're deep in Minecraft dungeons, but, uh, you know, I just turned him on to Scratch Jr. So it's sort of, you know how, you know, what our, our generation, we had Logo, hmm. you know, with the little turtle that was moving around the first programming language for people, um, you know, on the Apple II and things like that. It's, what about Roblox, No. Oh, not yet. I, I think they uh, they turn into Roblox fans in another couple of years is what I hear. Got it. Okay, so the six-year-old, you're not holding back. You're not scared of technology. Yeah, but, you know, Scratch Jr. is great. It's a great place to actually teach the kid, you know, this is what a function is, this is what a command is, and I don't know, he's really loving it. So I think it starts early. And so obviously you like blogging, so I am going backwards because now I'm curious. So posture, I remember using it. It was like a mobile-first, lightweight, medium meets Tumblr. What was it? Yeah, it was uh, the big thing was post by email. So post you just email. emailed post at posturist.com. And um, the funniest thing was you could email and attach anything. Um, and so what I didn't realize at the time, but now obviously, you know, 10, 15 years later, you have perfect hindsight on everything that you've done. Absolutely. Um, I'm the greatest hindsight investor ever. You know, the, I, I mean, I, I remember like, uh, I think I probably answered your support requests and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the thing that I didn't know at the moment, the reason why we could grow to a top 200 site was uh, the iPhone was new and apps didn't exist yet. And you had this beautiful phone that could take beautiful photos and then you didn't really have a good way to upload them to huh. Facebook or Twitter or any of your social networks. So you were a little early. 
Yeah. There I mean, was the was cloud, the, there was the iPhone, but you think the App Store would have made the difference? Because I remember using it, and I love email, so I, I don't know. I don't remember what was the end story. Did you sell it? Oh, man. Yeah. So Twitter ended up buying it, and I think Chris Saka <sighs> had a hand in that. But um, I do have a funny story. You know, we grew two years straight, uh, you know, raising a small amount of money, 700 grand, and then, uh, you know, $4 million Series A. But then... Uh, I remember the day we stopped growing and it was actually, you know, probably you could trace it to the day Instagram launched. Huh. And I didn't think much of the time because I was, you know, coding my 20 hours a day. And we got an email from our investor, Chris Saka. And he said, you know, emailed me and my co-founder at the time, Sachin Agrawal. And he said, hey, what do you think of Instagram? And before I could reply, my co-founder uh, replied, it sucks. <laughs> And there was like a one line email back from Chris saying, um, I'm very disappointed in you all. And then I never heard back from him again about it. Because um, he had invested but, in Instagram. But I thought, wasn't I, he yeah. one of your investors? I, I mean, we were actually, yeah, he was one of our investors. And um, you, nobody remembers this now because, because, you know, people post, you know, a billion times a day on Instagram. But that one last page where you click post Hmm. Posturous when it was launched, that? when when Instagram launched, was one of those check marks. Correct. You know, today it just says, I think Facebook and maybe Foursquare, and that's it. And the U.S. government. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that goes and without Russia. saying. Yeah. The so wait, so Chris, I mean, obviously he's an LP in my fund, so full disclosure. He's amazing. So yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, I mean, he was right place. You know, pull the right trigger at the right. You know, over and over again. And he just so, kept but, firing. Yeah, and. I think about that moment a lot because it's like that was the moment when we probably, you know, Instagram built what we should have built. And I remember, you know, for our Series A pitching Peter Fenton at Benchmark. It was Twitter too. And they didn't fund it. And he said, um, you know, are you a network or a platform? Like network meaning like Instagram, like it's free and you want to grow it as big as possible and you could, you know, monetize via ads. Or are you a platform like, you know, WordPress or, you know, something like, you know, or SmugMug or like one of the platforms you actually pay for. And uh, we didn't know what we were doing at the time. And frankly, you know, every founder has a crazy fog of war. So we said both. And uh, we might as well have been like thrown out of the room at that point. So and so those are sort of the two things that I now use all the time when I think about, you know, what should uh, I be funding as a VC today? Right. But you also Um, have such incredible power because now that I think about who was telling you this, I mean, these were like military grade, even in hindsight, investors. So maybe it would have been good to have a shitty investor and your family as investors because you would have just kept plowing along and figured it out the other side. So it's like really interesting how much the people on your cap table have such influence over you. I mean, you had great- Oh, definitely. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Whether like, they invest or not, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll point the way because people just see- they'll see the part of the business that, you know, when you're in the fog of war as a founder, you never get to see. So those conversations, whether they fund it or not, are incredibly important. Now, now I realize. And so you have no second, like it was the right thing to do. You sell to Twitter. Saka was helping you because he was also an investor in Twitter and Instagram. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, basically Posturus was grew unendingly until um, people figured out that there should be a really easy app to upload photos to a network. And then, yeah, we basically stopped growing. Um, and then Twitter, you know, the, the best thing about Silicon Valley, I will say, is even if you don't quite hit the mark, uh, you know, it all still works out because if you've hired great engineers and you've built good stuff, um, 
you know, Twitter in in that time frame just really needed to up level its engineering team. And it was cool to see the team that we built go on to help fix the fail whale and things like that. So it's so I forgot know, this part story. of the story. So right. So you were at Twitter. So how long were you at Twitter? Oh man, you know what? I had a co-founder falling out like right when our uh, growth flatlined. So that's when I went to work at Y Combinator. So I got all the fruits of uh, the exit without having to actually work there. <laughs> so so right. the he went one. to work in the engineering team there? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, Sachin went and was a, you know, lead PM, you know, head of a lot of things on the product side, you know, our um, head of mobile went over to run the mobile teams for Twitter. Um, it was just, a good acquisition, I thought, for Twitter and uh, a really good outcome for us and our investors as well. So that was years 07, 06, 08? Yeah, so started in 08 and then exited in 2012. Oh, so it was but four by years. And then I was already a partner at Y Combinator, which was fun. Since I first cold called people and found Fred's blog and caught the web 2.0 bug, it feels like there's never been a, a slowdown and it's getting faster and faster. And I was joking that August is the new January. It's like, man, even in 09, you took August off. Uh, 10, 11, 12, 13. Now it's like 2021 and August is just any other month. Well, now you can do Zoom like 10 hours a day, five days or seven days a week and, uh, you know, still not be done. So it's no rest for the wicked, eh? So what do you do about balance in a world where you have endless opportunity? Well, I think for initialized, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm working really hard on. You know, we did an open search for partners and principals. Um, you know, we made one great hire on the partner side and, you know, I expect at least one more there before the end of the year. We have a couple more principal roles that we're about to fill. So at the end of the day, now it's um, either, I mean, I think it's a barbell now, right? Uh, in venture, you are either, uh, you know, super high conviction, uh, you know, solo shot, solo entrepreneur, solo uh, investor, solo, you know, capitalist, uh -huh. um, or you go together as a group and you sort of, you know, build up a big platform and uh, you got big guns. And so we're sort of choosing the latter. It's like, let's go and be one of those platforms. Let's um, build up the team, the team that we're going to go and try to fund, you know, frankly, five unicorns a year. And, you know, that's, that's the rate where we're at um, sort of starting in 2016. I think that, well, we'll see. <laughs> it was it always initialized and how did that come together? I mean, honestly, once we were at Y Combinator, people came to us, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Alex Bangash over at yeah. TI Platform, but mm -hmm. he gave us our first two and a half. He introduced us to our first institutional LPs. You know, that was basically our first seven mil fund that's, uh, you know, north of 55X. Um, I think it's like 55X DPI now. Oh my post, God, 55X. Post, uh, I can't even tell you because I'm in a couple funds that I thought were good, but that's... So 55X, that was the first fund. And it was you, who was your, it was just you and Alex? Uh, me, Alexis, and Alexis. Uh, Harge Tagger, actually, who's a partner back at Y Combinator now. He actually hired me at Y Combinator. So it's been an interesting thing. You know, I, I think that the bigger thing to me is that the number of companies that could succeed, uh, the, the number of founders who are actually backable. And then, you know, now, especially this year, it's kind of obvious how much, money there is coming into our ecosystem. I think it's 10x, 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 right? Like 10 years ago, when I first started doing my first, frankly, like $5,000 angel investments, um, 
you know, the YC batch was maybe a hundred companies a year. I think they're pushing almost a thousand a year now. And, and that's what uh, you said you're panicked about, which is what I'm panicked about. It's like, I'm panicked about managing life. Like it's too good. Like, and then I say that and honest, I joke about this. It's like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do because I'm busy, but it's all good. Yeah. I mean, likewise. And I, you know, I think internally we have a lot of uh, conversations about FOMO and I think number one thing that you and I, and a lot of people, a lot of our friends need to do is just, you know, no FOMO it. Like, you know, if it's a no, it's a no, someone will fund it. If it's a yes, like try to win and try to get to yes faster than everyone else. Um, and then beyond that, you know, is it hard, you know, it's hard to do? Is it valuable? Is it fun? Like, I like how Max Levchin like named his whole firm after that. It was like, literally, if it's just something that you want to work on and it excites you and makes you, you know, just wake up in the morning and be like, I'm excited that thing exists. It's like, fund it, you know? So Tam aside, because I'm the same way. So hang on, what's oh, the name yeah. of his firm? Sorry. Oh, uh, Max Levchin's uh, venture fund is called Hard Valuable Fund or HVF. Oh, got it. Which I am sort of obsessed with. I really like that. Sorry, and what does that mean? Oh, it means, uh, you know, it, it, I think that literally is trying to be like the value statement for the things that he wants to fund. Like it has to be hard as in technically hard. He's a software engineer uh. and loves things that, you know, are not easy to do, right? It's like, you know, what's the man on the moon sort of Manhattan project? Like what are the things that are really hard to do and engineers can go and do that thing. And then valuable, I think, kind of encapsulate your, your, encapsulates your TAM thing, which is like, is it something society actually needs and wants? Because there are lots of things that are hard, but nobody gives a crap about it, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't, you know, move the needle on anyone's life. Um, and then fun, I think, is just legit fun. Like, does it just make you more excited to, you know, live? <laughs> yeah, I'm more like fun. Because I don't have any skills of coding or whatever. So obviously I have to be able to use it. So I can't do pre-product. My partner Gary does because obviously I can't code. So if it doesn't work, you don't need me because uh, I can't help you. So it's it's been easy for me because I have no FOMO because it's just – I realize it's just endless opportunities. And therefore I really just love – all my mistakes are stuff where I'm just wrong, which is fine. You're wrong about but, the you founder, know, wrong about this, but I can live with all but that. But when you're right, it's a thousand X, which and is it feels what a strange world we live in. Because at least I did some, you can argue that my stuff hasn't changed the world or whatever. I don't give a shit about that. It's like, I don't know. I was put on the search to just get stuff incrementally, stuff that I want to see. Yeah, you know it. Yeah, or, I don't know, know if it's good Vonnegut or bad. I didn't that. know it. What's that? Vonnegut says we, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, the writer, says that we're, you know, put on this earth earth to fart around so there's also that <laughs> i think there's like an element of fun in that too you know that that is really what it feels like and it's really obviously it's great to see moonshots and you know these people going to space and obviously solar and hard tech but i wouldn't know it if i saw it you know i don't know how to put those things together so i i applaud it and try not to be too cynical about it and then just go about doing my thing. After 55 return, was it, is it hard to get up in the morning? And obviously you have a good life, but I'm saying, how do you go back to work when you've been on the moon? Now what I, well, to, to zoom out a little bit for me, uh, this year has been a real year of self-introspection because I grew up poor and I realized actually I spent a lot of my life in that moment of, trying to 
get rich, mm-hmm. actually. I don't, th- you know, I think that that's actually a very American trait. And um, yep. I think a lot of people are in that mode. And um, I guess I realized there was an aspect of that of being afraid. You know, I think that growing up, I actually also had fears of being destitute, of home, of being homeless, of like losing my job, you know. And I think that that really came from, that was what it felt like when I was, a, you know, a teenager. And um, it was something that was real to, you know, my family system. And um, I think now I've sort of exercised that. And uh, instead, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's like 10x bigger opportunities, 10x more people who could start companies that now should, and 10x more capital coming in. Like I think $100 billion a year in VC, it'll be a trillion dollars a year in 10 years, easy. Like, I mean, I tweeted that thinking that was going to be controversial and people were like, Boring. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. But that's just Twitter. People are up. Not, I mean, the point is, in my world, you'll just get mocked. That's the stock market world where everybody yeah. just hates the Fed and hates hates everything because, God damn, there's been a 13-year basic bull market and people want to see a crash um, versus the optimistic tech world, which can be cynical, but it's like, yeah, you idiot, of course it's going to get bigger. Like, it's tech. Both are right. And I'd rather be you than the one always betting against the machine. I mean, here's the thing. It's not our fault the Fed's printing money. It's not our fault you live in America. And what's interesting about the people on your side of the business who went to Stanford and care less about the stock market, I don't think you care that much about it, is like, I would bet that you are not thinking about the macro, even at your now new size. Or do you like worry about what the market's doing? Should we make this investment? Do you worry about that stuff? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talk about it all the time because, you know, what does it look like when, you know, we have companies, the average company raising at like, you know, a series A 10 years ago was a, my series A, it was like four on 20 post or something with Redpoint, right? And, uh, you know, today it's a 20 on like 150 with Tiger or someone like that, right? Isn't that, it's, you know, that's that's called a Series A now. Well, I'd like to be the recipient of that Series A. I didn't think yeah. it was that high. It's a good wow. time to start a company. Got any ideas, Howard? We could, uh, you know, I'll be the hacker. Yeah, we could start one. It's never been, I'm just too old. It's never been a better time to start a company. It's also never been a better time to have product market fit. Oh, Yeah. And that's something that's just blowing my mind. Like the companies in our portfolio that are product market fit, I just like, okay, I don't know what the rules are anymore. You have product market fit, ask for whatever the fuck you want. Like it's bananas. And those companies have, you know, 20 months to like 60 months of runway when they raise it. And then afterwards they have 10 years of runway. Correct. And so we don't know what that's going to do to the world. Yeah. But I think if the founders are good, it's like, you know, they do the same thing with, you know, one year of runaway or 10. You know, the real problem is, uh, you know, when it's not real, right? Yeah, some of the best advice I got when I started StockTwist that I didn't take was if you can raise eight, raise 80. And I was like, what? What am I going to spend eight on? And that was the best advice. Of course, I should have raised 80 if they're willing to give me eight. You know what I mean? Because I knew what I wanted to do. So I'm not going to begrudge these guys who have product market fit to go get after it. Yeah. So it's weird because now it's um, a lot of people talked about the lean startup. The lean startup was the right thing when capital was scarce. Mm, and right. then now there's a different thing you have to be good at, which is how do you run the fat startup? Love that. And how do you do it that doesn't burn all the money and or destroy your, you know, destroy the company? 
And that is going to happen less because it's hard to piss the money away. Yeah, you'd hope. I mean, people find ways. <laughs> they always will find the way. Good point. But I have not seen it as much. You know, you almost can spot it and you're just in from their tweet. Like it's, it, there's so many signals to spot waste. Um, yeah. But we live in this, this incredibly leverageable, I call it social leverage, but there's an incredible leverageable world. So in a world that you now can do all this, did Coinbase, did you, because even in Robinhood, there were moments when it was obviously scary. Was there a moment where it was scary or no? Did you always feel comfortable that was, he was building something great? You know what it was? It was all macro at that point. You know, with crypto, you have these, you know, months long where you're 90% down, uh, years sometimes where, you know, everyone who was smart, uh, who came in the past couple of years, exit the business. And then when the last one uh, leaves and, you know, the door hits them on the way out, that's when the market comes roaring back again. And I feel like it's happened three or four times. Um, it was interesting to listen to Brian talk on his uh, earnings call last yesterday, where, you know, we don't know what Q3, you know, Q2 was awesome, 100%, you know, quarterly growth. It's That's not a normal quarter for anyone, let alone for a business that's throwing off, you know, billions in free cash flow per year. Um, but we're also linked to, you know, next, next quarter, next month um, could be the winter again. And, uh, you know, I think that that's the repeating thing that everyone in Coinbase, but also everyone who's exposed to crypto has to just you know, diamond hands it, you know, like, I know this is going to happen again. And, uh, the moment to, uh, you know, the moment when you really, really want to capitulate, that's when you should take all your free cash and try to buy some more. Yeah. You know, a year and a half ago, like Ethereum was at 75 bucks. And I remember staring at that and wondering if it will ever come back. And, you know, today it's at 3,100, right on, I think it's on, on its way back to 10,000, but you know, I think it'll revisit, I don't know, hundreds again, maybe 500, 800, a thousand, like who knows like that, you know, I'm mentally prepared for that. And so that's the scary part of being in crypto period, but certainly in things linked to crypto like Coinbase. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you've been, you understand the tech. I followed two people and now I'm going to add you because I, I just forgot how close you are to crypto, but I only follow the people that I feel are doing this for the love of the game, right? Like Fred and Fred Wilson and Chris Dixon, they have, they have nothing but reputation Legends. risk. I tell people like they're not in it for the money. It can only oh, go yeah. bad for them because if they're wrong, everybody goes, you're an idiot. But I'm sure they had their doubts. Cause I remember Fred buying it at 80 or 90 on the way down to 75 where he blogged about it. And I'm sure that didn't feel good, but you know, to those people go the spoils and you know, I think the reputation risk is bigger than everything because they, so many people have the money now. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, it's easy to look like a genius on one trade, I guess. There's plenty. There's plenty of uh, people who look like geniuses in, on one trade. It's hard to be right on trade after trade. And so what size check are, are you writing initially or is it all over the map now? Uh, we're around two to four and a half. I mean, we want to be smaller than the classic Series A firms, but we can be bigger than the classic seed funds. And, um, but I want to do early, you know, I, I really like meeting people when they're, you know, two people or one person in a demo and a crazy idea. So we want to keep doing that if we can, but it's tough. It's tough because everyone wants to do that now. And then, 
you have five or 10 years if you figure out if you were right. And is it crypto that you just think is exciting you the most? Or what is there two things that excite you the most about the world? Well, I mean, climate, I think, is increasingly being becoming a thing that we think will come together. And then that's almost becoming a consensus bet. I mean, to look at $4 billion climate funds come together. Um, yeah, SACA's you know, doing one. I saw yeah, SACA's doing it. And uh, I mean, there are some very, very smart people. And I think you can, they're voting with their feet uh, and with, you know, other people's dollars. And it's very impressive because it's going to be regulatory. But I think that we have the wherewithal to do it. You know, I think the U.S. government will do the right thing and we'll have new marketplaces that mandate carbon removal. And I think that that might actually be a large percentage of GDP because that's what it's going to take to uh, keep us underneath the catastrophic levels that IPCC has talked about. So, you know, I think that that's really big, but it's also out there. Uh, but I don't think people are talking about it enough. No, I actually was just on, you know, I'm doing series of pods and two people, two VCs that I didn't expect to bring it up brought it up. So so what makes it investable? The fact that the, there's enough smart people investing with you or is there enough good founders working on simplified ideas of it all? Or is it just the TAM's big enough now? Oh, I mean, I think the TAM will go up with regulation. And um, if you have the right folks on policy, you know, government drives a lot of this stuff, yep. right? And I think that we have the climate for it. And I think it's going to go that way. And then when that changes, you know, it's, if it's a two-sided marketplace, one side of that market will suddenly go up massively in demand. And that means um, the very companies to invest in will provide that supply. And those will be very big companies that drive a lot of revenue, um, but also hopefully save us from a catastrophe. And then besides climate, what is it for you? Hmm. I mean, what's funny is I'm still a big believer in just plain old software. It's too boring to really even mention. On the other hand, like things like Flexport or TruePill, like these are, you know, logistics, you know, it's a large part of GDP. A lot of the transactions in those spaces don't, don't have software day to day. You know, I think if you talk to you know, Ryan at Flexport, he talks a lot about what is the document that still runs logistics. It's the bill of lading. And that's a piece of paper, right? And like warning bells go off for me when you look at any industry in the world and you look down and there are file cabinets and fax machines and pieces of paper yeah. as like the operating thing that makes it work. And, um, you know, the, I think that these are still one-time shifts and I'm pretty excited to see, like we have companies in our portfolio like Rabus that is in, you know, a space that you wouldn't, you know, you'd have to go in the yellow pages, I guess, to like figure out that that was a real market. You know, um, these are, they, they sell aluminum rolls, rolls of aluminum, like tons of them, right? Like this is how you buy metals, right? Um, or Node just raised a ton of money. And, um, you know, these are vertical marketplaces that the last generation, it's the last generation of people who ran those businesses were not digital native. Like they didn't Correct. have an iPhone. They probably still wanted to, you know, hold on to a form and triplicate or a file cabinet. Uh, and then now, you know, it's people who take a photo of their lunch uh, within, within, uh, posted on Instagram and then they go back to their desk and they're like emailing an Excel spreadsheet, right? And they don't <laughs> want to be doing that. They want to be using smart software with structured data that makes it, you know, better, faster, cheaper. 
So I think you're going to see a ton more flex ports. I think you're going to see a, a ton more rabuses. You know, these are, you know, industries that are really obscure, but then really drive our economy forward. And um, it, these are these are like sort of one-time shifts. You know, Silo was a company that we seeded, and you know, Anish at uh, Andreessen did the A. And um, oh, that's Anish, a I know Anish. Was it fintech? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's basically a vertical marketplace that. Uh, runs increasingly a lot of the food supply. So huh. fruits, vegetables being sold by growers to distributors, then to grocers. And so, you know, the funniest thing is 15 years ago, you would watch um, IBM or Accenture make these uh, TV ads uh, about e-business. And the reality is like, did they really do it? Mm, they sold all these you know, million dollar contracts that were, you know, cost plus or something like that. Um, these were con consulting e-business contracts for marketplaces that didn't work. And then today in 2021, you have large pieces of the GDP that are going from paper, pencil, like, you know, steak dinner, enterprise sale, like long-standing relationships for like million dollar contracts to, you know, digital marketplaces that have per perfect pricing data and it's better, faster, cheaper. And we're seeing it across the whole spectrum. So, you know, it's kind of boring. It's kind of the thing that has been happening, but now it's happening in like some of the latest adopter industries out there. No, we did it. We did logic board out of Seattle with the third generation kid in that logistics business. And, and then Redpoint came into that. And then we did produce pay way back. So I got to, I got to look up silo and I'll, I'll back channel with you about that. Yeah, there are plenty. I mean, I think that there's infinity numbers of things like that. And then the number one thing is you can't just be one of these like Stanford, Harvard, CS majors going to create like a photo, you know, a photo sharing app again in 2021. Like you've got to actually go and find people who might have spent like, you know, five years, 10 years in an old industry that like nobody knows about. And then, you know, you pair that with some people who are great at building software and shoot, you know, you mint a billion dollar company every single year if you do those. But at the same time, decentralization comes along and everything will get built again, like photo, like different. Yeah, we'll fund those things too. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, so how do you, I feel like it's just too ginormous. You think it couldn't get any better because you want to like, go, okay, this, this time it's, you know, this time it's different. That's what everybody says at the top. But I got to say that this time, and who knows why, and I'm happy to be wrong. I mean, I expect to be wrong, but we have two parallel universes. We have a physical one and a digital one. And there's this whole digital economy. Like, you know, I call it the um, flippening where I ended up like, I don't even know what I'm doing in crypto, but I'm not bringing it back because I don't need to. And I don't even know what the rules are, but... I haven't broken any rules, but I'm saying, I don't even know what the rules of if I brought it back, who am I supposed to tell and where's it supposed to go? And how do I, you know what I mean? And so in that world, everything will just get built over again. It's like, I know they call it the multiverse, but I, I don't really like that term. It's just like, I feel like there's a digital economy, fully digital over there. And then there's the physical one that's partly digital. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that's one of the cool things about being an investor is um, you get to fund the first wave. And then because you funded the first wave, you can fund the second wave, too. So, right. The, the advice I give people is, oh, I want to be a VC. So we'll start writing checks because until you write the first ones, you can't write the next ones. Yeah. Being the right things, which is hard. I don't know. It's hard. 
So what about media? I mean, obviously you you love media. You built a platform for media, and now you went out and are doing a YouTube show. Why? What is it about it that you love, or is what is it what is it doing for you, or what are you just experimenting, or what's the goal? Well, what I realize now is uh, every business is actually a meme. So, and even Y Combinator, which like taught me to become a founder. Um, I got to there because of media. It was because of Paul Graham's essays and Hacker News. So, you know, in order for me to even, or, and, you know, if you look at the core of a lot of people, like, you know, yes, like Mark Andreessen created the web browser, but he also still created these essays that are sort of passed around as like, you know, um, they're still held up as, you know, this is sort of the, the lore that we use um, to learn how to make startups, right? Um, so he's, created media that transcends and then builds his brand and people, you know, like me coming up, it's like, shoot, I want to work with that person. Right. And I, you know, sought out Paul Graham, um, because that those, these are the breadcrumbs we can leave behind for people who want to do what, you know, maybe some of these folks have done. And, um, in that case, it's like, shoot, video is pretty untapped. I mean, I think podcasts are just starting still. And so video is even more nascent. Nascent, and I would say because everybody says, because I've tried it a bit, you know, I did Wall Strip, and here we are 15 years later, and I could probably do it again because no one, no one even wants to do it. No one picked up the torch and did better business television, you know? And here we are with YouTube and TikTok, and there's still, I don't see anything that interests me, and yet CNBC is still on the air. So, Yet I don't want to do YouTube again because it's such hard work. So, oh, it's a lot of work. Oh, my God. So I have, like, hats off. Just looking at yourself in, in video is hard. Oh, yeah. I think you just have to get over it. Therapy helps. <laughs> <laughs> so are you offering therapy if I started a YouTube show? Oh, yeah. For you, absolutely. Yeah. Will you back a media <laughs> company if I pitch you a media company? Uh, you know, I'd probably do it for my personal book. I mean, I definitely think that there is space out there for a Vox or Vice but one that tells it from our angle, honestly, you know, I, I get that big tech is evil and powerful, but you know, what about little tech? You know, there's a whole set of things out there that should be told that nobody wants to cover because all they want to cover is like how evil Apple or Microsoft or whoever, you know, it's the controversy of the day in business and tech media. And, uh, you know, nobody's covering your startups and my startups. And those stories are actually worth telling because that's how we beget a thousand more startups like that. So what do you read to stay up to date or who do you read? I mean, honestly, Twitter and YouTube is like my bread and butter, right? But you know, Ashley Vance over at Bloomberg, I think his YouTube stuff is incredible. Like his huh. episode on Shenzhen, amazing, right? And he gets a million, couple million views per video that he does. And they're basically like mini documentaries about a lot of the things we talked about, like climate tech or electric, you know, electric trucks and things, you know, and I'm like, that's how it should be done. Like we need that times a thousand and there should be a brand behind that. So I'm kind of oh, thinking about how, how to start that. Um, me too, by the way. So Ashley Vance at Bloomberg? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, you know, he's a great author. He's a great journalist. And, you know, he does these videos for fun. So I'm supposed to meet up with him soon. He's really impressive. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am fascinated. I'm spending my own money. I started my own panic productions just to fund stories about what's happened. You know, like, I guess you call it breadcrumbs, and I agree. I just want storytelling about, you know, these Reddit kids. You didn't invent this stuff. This stuff was around in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like, it's just evolving and getting faster. And But they need to read his. They need to get their history from somewhere where they are willing to watch it. So you got to keep yeah. trying to like hit them over the head and say, well, "Do you like this? Does this yeah. help?" You know what I mean? And it's not all doom and gloom. Is the thing for me? You know, uh, the weird thing is like I actually really love Vox. I love Vox Video in particular. But there was an article about Starlink that I just like got so mad about, and then it went viral for uh, for the reason that I I coined the term Sky NIMBY. I was like. Starlink is going to connect our civilization, no matter where you are on this planet, bring the internet and knowledge and learning to every bit of this planet. And yet the sky nimbies are mad because the article is about how you can actually see some of the satellites in the sky for certain parts of the year. And uh, it went viral on Twitter, Um, you know, among our people, right? Among people who believe in tech, uh, because sky nimby is a funny term. But then it went sort of big with, um, uh, you know, sort of the socialists and the people who actually really hate tech. Yep. So I, I got like burnt alive by, uh, you know, I got revered and like retweeted by one side of Twitter and then completely burnt alive the other side. And, uh, you know, that's what really made me realize, hey, there are actually people out there who, you know, hate tech. And I sort of get why, but they also sort of, they don't see the things that you and I see. And I, I, and I don't think that media shows them it, actually. They, they don't show the process of creation. They don't show founders sitting down and like making a thing that didn't exist before and making it better for other people. And, you know, Elon has his faults. On the other hand, like, I think that there's a reason why he uh, is so revered by people who love technology. Yeah, I think documentaries will help. Storytelling, you know, people, young people like documentaries, so there'll be more of them. You know what I mean? They, we've run out of good stories to tell. Netflix is going around the world now because Israelis tell good stories, you know. So, uh, like, storytelling's moving, and it's a global thing. I'm super bullish on content, even though it's hard because it almost democratizes anything. Like, if you can tell a story, you don't have to be a tech guru. You just got to be able to tell a story, and everybody has stories. Yeah, and now the pla- you know the weird thing that uh, I learned from doing YouTube is that you can do it from very small numbers, not knowing what you're doing, and then as long as you're just consistent about it, um, and you have a good story that people actually want to hear, it'll grow. And so, you know, two a year and a half ago, I started not knowing what the heck I was doing, and doing all the filming, editing, scripting myself. And then um, at some point, I got to fifty thousand subs. It went from like ten thousand to. Once I hit 10,000, I got to 50,000 fast. And then I hired a team. And now that team has been working with me since the beginning of the year. And we hit 168,000. So it's something that, you know, month on month, like you can grow it like a startup. You know, I've been looking at 20% month on month growth since the beginning. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I want to keep funding that with my time. And what's the name of the podcast? Oh, it's just under my name. It's just Gary Tan on YouTube. And that's, you know, that's one of the hacks I realized. Like people attach to people very easily. And then people attach to brands with great cost. And so it was easy for me to have a relationship. You know, what it is is a parasocial relationship. Like tens of thousands of people I asked to subscribe and click the bell icon. 
And then when I post, they just watch every single thing. And it's like, you know, they're 10 minutes with me every single week. So and, once a week, uh, 10 minutes. Yep. And who chooses the subject? You? Yep. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, whatever I think is interesting, I just try to put out there. Yeah, I'm not a YouTuber, but I'm going to, I haven't figured out the right amount of time. When I did Wall Strip, it was four minutes. And I think now because of finance, guys are doing two hours. And I'm like, guys, I don't have two hours. It's too long. Nobody and TikTok, has I have no hours. interest in. So I got to <laughs> rediscover YouTube. And you know, uh, what also taught me that this could be doable, I mean, I've been doing it um, for a year and a half. My buddy, Justin Kahn, started uh, sure. sometime early or late last year, mm-hmm. and he got to like 1.30 real fast. And I think that we can actually just, you know, do that now. You know, I think you could get to 100 130. Can I look? Can easy. I, if I write good stuff, can I, if I make good content, can we partner on that? Can I, yeah, just, man, can like I glob that, onto you know, your that's subscription? That's the best thing stuff? is growth mindset maximum. Um, because if it helps me and it helps you, because uh, it's really just the algo. Like if, if we get linked up, if our audiences, if my audience likes your stuff and your audience likes my stuff, then anytime we post, like we help each other. Uh, I realize this because if you look at um, photo YouTube, like if you ever want to buy a camera, it's basically Peter McKinnon, who has like, I don't know, four or five million subs, and then his two or three friends. And uh, all, almost all of the videos that people watch about Sony and Canon, Canon cameras are him and his buddies because they started posting five, three, five years ago about it. And the algo just knows that if you watch one of these, you watch the other ones too. And Google just wants you to stay on the site and never click off. Bastards. <laughs> And so when did you get comfortable? How long did it take you to get comfortable? Oh, it took at least a year. I don't know if I'm willing to do that. And that's good advice. You can't just do this and be an overnight success. Yeah, no, you just got to push through the dip. I mean, my favorite thing is uh, Ira Glass talking about this. You know, if you have taste, the thing that you make will not be as good as what your taste dictates. And then that's the moment when you want to quit. And if you quit, you'll never get good enough. But if you keep going through that dip, you'll actually get good enough. And then you'll actually be that good. And that's like the key to all creative endeavor is, you know, that moment when you look at what you made and it sucks. And then knowing that that sucks is actually great. It means that you're going to make it. Huh. And now that you're on doing this YouTube, you could change one thing about your face. What would you change? (laughs) I don't know. I could (laughs) use a stronger chin, I think. Well, there you go. All right. Well, uh, I, I could talk for hours. I'm going to have to have you back if that's okay. I, I just want to be respectful of your time. It's Gary Tan. Easy to follow on Twitter and YouTube. I really appreciate the time, obviously. Oh, likewise. I probably didn't get to talk about what you wanted to talk about. No, not at all. I'm always down. The way I do these podcasts is like, wing it. And I had a million questions, got to a few of them. Happy to have you on the channel. Uh, happy to reciprocate. Cause, and then if you ever do YouTube, you would kill. And what do you think I should do if I was knowing what you know and not knowing me? You well should wing it. Wing it. But should I talk about what I like to talk about? Or yeah, should absolutely. I? What you want to, well, whatever you want to talk about. And then honestly, it'll be something your audience already cares about because they, they care about you. And do you have guests or never? Oh yeah. I have guests all the time. So you, you got to come on mine and we'll, uh, you know, we got to hang. All right. I'll be there tomorrow. What time do you want to do it tomorrow, Gary? I'll get it all set up. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, thanks for doing this. I'm glad you're, I mean, it's so fun to to get the backstories 
and uh, see people that just keep pushing forward. Who who do you look up to? Who's your inspiration now? Obviously, Paul, great. You've, I mean, his essays are great, but who do you think is doing it great on the content side? Oh, on the content side, man. I mean, I just talked to Ali Abdal. He's really, he got a million subs. Um, MKBHD, like Mr. Beast. These are all like incredible people. Uh, my buddy Sriram Krishnan over at Andreessen. Sure. He's killing it both on Clubhouse and on YouTube. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. And the best thing is like the more smart people make stuff, you know, we get into a little cabal and we like link to each other and collab. And then we like, take over this algorithm together is the thing. So let's do it. But then then don't they change the algo? I hope not. <laughs> well, you're not doing anything illegal. You're just doing good content and Google recognizes that. I mean, this is why, you know, Patreon exists and, you know, you, you got to have your own email list. You have to your own, have your own sub stack and, you know, maybe now you have to have your own community and they're all different, you know, your own Discord server. So Right, and you just said, fuck it, let's now. just play the YouTube algo game. Yep, yep. Yep. I love it. You didn't overthink it. I mean, there's a million ways to skin it. Uh, I, I totally agree with your strategy. I think Substack is for some and there'll always be this stuff, but I think when the platform's that big and there are certain rules that you play by and there's little hacks you can do, this consistency is what matters. And, and I think that's good advice. You're never going to be up to the taste that you think, yep, that's really good stuff. The last question. What's your favorite thing on Netflix that you've seen recently? Oh man, I'm watching Narcos uh, Mexico. And then I just am on book three of the Don Winslow um, trilogy about all of the crazy stuff happening in Mexico with um, the drug war from like the 80s till today. And it's all fictionalized, but you can look up every single crazy thing that happens in that book and it links to a real thing that happened in the US-Mexico drug war. I just watched this border town, I don't know if it was a documentary or half true story on Netflix, so I forget the name. It was just a boring kind of docudrama about a border town and what the, the cartel does. And I'm like, if 1% is true, and I know 90% is true, that is the craziest stuff going on down there. It's sad. Yeah. And the brutal thing is like, you know, drugs are something people want, right? And um, yeah. and that's that's probably the scariest thing, you know? I think that that's the takeaway from a lot of these fiction works about what really happened is, um, shoot, it's like Americans want drugs, right? And uh, maybe that's where it needs to be solved. But that's another episode. All right, my man, be safe. Have a great uh, rest of the summer. Thanks for doing this. All right, we'll hang again soon. Okay, cheers. That was fun. Amazing. Yeah, we've had some fun conversations. Obviously, you can talk to Gary forever. But the excitement, the ability to just engage is what excites me because that's where I'm at. It's like, right. you don't have to do it. I don't think I'll ever do climate, but I'm really fascinated, as you know, by media and what we could be doing. And you Exactly. Know. All right, this Panic with Friends. Thanks for listening, everybody. I, too, have a subscribe button. So if you go to Spotify, Google, Apple, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, just hit subscribe, tell your friends. Once a week, we come at you with uh, episodes of me chatting with what I think are the best investors, traders, entrepreneurs, trying to get one or two steps ahead, no inside info, just simple stuff on how to uh, trend follow and build your own Peloton and uh, be a consistently uh, good investor. So uh, thanks, Knut. We'll see everybody soon. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage, 
All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of social leverage or stock twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.